Before we jump into today's episode, if you haven't already, go check out Ostrich. We're all about improving your financial literacy, financial well-being, and helping you get to where you want to be financially. And uh, we've actually rolled out a really cool program that I'm excited to announce. It's called Shares for Shares. And we're actually giving away shares of stock in our company uh, for sharing our network and helping grow the network. So go to getostrich.com, sign up, start sharing, and you can earn uh, a limited number of referral shares that we've got available. Hello, and welcome to the Silicon Alley Podcast. Super excited you could join me today. I'm William Glass, CEO and co-founder of Ostrich, and of course, your host of the Silicon Alley Podcast. Now, on the Silicon Alley Podcast, I talk to entrepreneurs and top performers to understand what it truly takes to grow and scale a business. You'll get actionable advice that you can apply in your own business and life. Now, on today's episode, I sit down with Jay Webb on his podcast, Over Quota. If you remember, Jay was on episode number 29, Flipping the Script, Sell Your Way Out of Anything. Before I jump into what you can expect on today's episode, if you have not already, subscribe and follow the Silicon Alley Podcast so you get notified when a new episode drops every Friday. And if you hear something you like, be sure to share the podcast with others on social media, text, email, or however you prefer. So a couple months back, Jay invited me to be a guest on his podcast, Over Quota, which focuses on distilling key traits, habits, and advice from sales leaders and executives at technology companies. And back before Andrew and I started Ostrich, I was in tech sales working at both a Fortune 500 company called Gartner and then for an AI startup called Remesh. My career in sales was not a given though. I had no clue what I want to do out of college, except I was not going to settle for a 50 or 60K salary, which led me to a start in sales. The episode from the Overquota podcast is titled How to Go from No Industry Experience to Sales Management in Under Two Years. Jay probes deep into my backstory and we talk about all things sales. So I hope that you enjoy this special episode courtesy of Jay Webb and the Jay David Group. You got no time to waste, but still you hesitate. Calling yes, today is William Glass, co-founder of Ostrich, which helps people create a new way to talk about money. We'll get into that um, later on. And he's also the host of his own podcast called Silicon Alley, where he explores the truth about exploring entrepreneurship for the first time. William, welcome to Over Quota. Thanks, Jay. Appreciate you having me on and excited to sit down and talk to you. Absolutely. So um, we connected through a platform, frankly, that connects um, podcasters. And we got to talking a little bit, um, you know, before this, this interview. And, you know, I was fascinated to, you know, learn more about you and, and to dig into your LinkedIn profile and hear um, your journey. And I think this would be good for my audience to hear how someone goes from, you know, where you were um, at, in the journey that you've been on to founding um, your own uh, fintech company. Um, so let's just start from the beginning. Talk to me a little bit about your childhood and 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 how it influenced um, you know where you know your career decisions later on. If you will. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, growing up, I grew up in Alabama. So you know that was that was a you know now I'm in New York. So just interesting transition from there. But um, I. My, my family was very, uh, very entrepreneurial in the sense that my mom was an actress. My whole, my grandparents on that side of the family was a stand-up comedian. Grandmother was a big band singer and everyone was in entertainment. And so as a kid, I actually was uh, a model. So I, I did commercials and print ads and things like that and actually was introduced to the fact that I could spend two days and make $2,700 on Cracker Barrel commercial at the age of, you know, 10. 
And that was something, you know, at the time I didn't really understand, but I was like, this seems to be something that's, that's really interesting that I can spend, you know, two days at the age of 10 and make $2,700. And then there's residual income and things like that that come in. Um, But one of the things that really impacted me as a, as a kid was um, growing up is that my parents actually uh, got divorced because of money. And that really affected my career decisions and how I, uh, what I wanted to pursue. And the reason that they blew up was in 2008, they overlevered and, um, you know, bought condos at the beach and that sort of thing and had no plan of whether it was going to cash flow or sell for a profit. And um, in the, in the midst of all that, everything blew up and they blew up with it. And so that really impacted me and sort of my career trajectory. And so from there, you know, I ended up uh, going to study international relations and just wanted to get away um, and kind of run away from everything because it was just such a tumultuous time um, in my life. And um, one of the ways that I did that, which um, you you, uh, mentioned before we hopped on, Jay, is that I actually went to Thailand through the State Department Fulbright Scholarship. So if you're not familiar, the State Department provides the scholarships for for folks to go overseas, teach English or do research. And so I was actually an English teacher over in uh, Thailand to the State Department. And let me just back up for a second before we get yeah, into yeah, that. Yeah. One thing that you said, which is interesting, and frankly, it's always an interesting subject of mine, when you said residual income from that $2,700 day that you spent yeah. two days doing. Um, oh, so how did, that, how did that work? So you went, you obviously needed to audition for the commercials that you were doing right yeah you spent two days shooting the 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 ads and all that other stuff and then beyond that those two days was it every time that the that the ad aired or commercial aired you would get paid is that correct yeah so the way that it works is uh so first off you have got an agent so the agent was the one that handled bookings and auditions and similar to sales uh, you know, my mom's saying in, in the business was that you'd go to 40 auditions before you'd get one, mm-hmm. one booking and one gig. And mm-hmm. so when you think about how that translates to sales, right? Think about how many sales calls you have to make before you get one yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that sort of like mentality of it takes, uh, you know, it, it takes that effort and continual, um, you just got to push through those auditions until you get that, that one yes. Uh, but in terms of the residual piece of it, Jay, is uh, people will buy for a certain amount of time. So the original package is for a year. So they might buy a commercial for a year, year and a half. And what will happen is if they want to renew that, that's when you start making residual income is on the, the renewal period. So after that first initial contract period. Got it. So, the, so it could air hundreds of times within that period of contract, but then you don't get residual there. It's when they renew the contract that you get residual. Exactly. Exactly. How did you handle the rejection at 10 years old? I mean, how, what, was, what was that like? Uh, yeah, I mean, I had a, I had a lot of good coaching from my from my mom, so I have to I have to give credit there. Hmm. You know, the expectation was, hey, you're probably not going to get this, but um, you know, it's okay. You're going to have to go to 40 auditions. Hmm. Um, but for me, it was fun. Like, I get to go out, I get checked out of school early, or you know, that sort of thing to go and pretend that I'm someone else. Like as a kid, we pretend all the time and act and play, and so it was just sort of natural as as a, as a kid. And I started doing it when I was. Um, I don't know, maybe like four or five. So over the years, you know, you go on maybe five, six, seven, eight auditions a year, at least in Alabama where, you know, mm-hmm. there's just not as much volume. So it wasn't something where I was like constantly getting hit with rejection, mm-hmm. um, but I also had really good expectations and support from, from my, my family. Funny, I try to nurture that 
mentality into my kids now. Not, you know, they're not in the business, I guess, so to speak, but yeah. you know, the fact that they're at four and six, they can at this point still design their own lives. Right. I guess I should, I shouldn't even qualify by saying still, I think everybody can still, you know, can design your own life regardless of how old you are. It's just that they have so much more runway. And I always try to emphasize that idea of play and right brain activity and, you know, those types of things. You know, we talked about homeschooling before we came on and, you know, I went down there to substitute teach once because my wife's been doing a great job doing it. And when I went down yeah. to substitute teach, my subject was, you know, how all of these YouTube videos that you're walking, that you're watching are making money, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and I was trying to tell them to, you know, rather than be a content um, uh, user, so to speak, to be a content creator, right? To be yeah. able to produce that content as opposed to um, always consuming it. I guess, if you will. So that's interesting um, to hear. And I'm always fascinated by how people's upbringing has informed their, you know, their current existence, so to speak, in one way or another. One, one more question um, regarding yeah. that uh, period of time. What level of success, um, you know, did your parents achieve, I guess, in the business? And is that how they were able to afford those condos and those types of things? So both of my parents are attorneys. So that's okay. how they were able to do that. Um, and father was political consultant specifically. So he didn't even, he hated to practice law. Um, <laughs> so he more just did, you know, managed campaigns and things like that. But, uh, but on the, my grandparents were very successful. So they made a living off of, um, you know, my grandfather traveled all around the country doing stand-up shows and, was part of part of the Screen Actors Guild, and you know qualified for all their you know level different um, healthcare and and pension program and all that kind of stuff. Um, and my grandmother very successful. She had a a, a gig that she stayed with, and um, the that whole side of the family is just in the music business. I've got an uncle that's in the music business, another uncle that ran the Chicago Public Radio station, This American Life. He wow. produced that. Um, so yeah, that very very successful in that front. But my uh, my actual parents ended up in, um, in, uh, law and that's really right. where they, where they spent their time. So. Okay, cool. All right, good. Thanks for clearing that. For yeah. Me. yeah. That. Um, and, and Fulbright scholar, what exactly, what, what is a Fulbright scholar? Yeah, great question. So Fulbright is a program that the state department created back in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. And it was a way to, cause after that time we'd just come out of world war two and so we wanted to kind of expand our, um, you know, our influence across the globe and also give back to some of the countries and folks that had been, um, you know, gone through World War, World War II and we were helping rebuild them. And so Fulbright program is around sending folks from the U.S. abroad as well as bringing folks um, outside of the U.S., into um, the United States from other countries and either focusing on research or scholarship or specific industry to help promote that cross collaboration. And um, so it's a, you know, it's, it's an award that, um, that has a couple different categories and I specifically ended up in Thailand um, and was an English teacher there. So I taught uh, middle school and high school kids, 13 to 19 year olds in the rural countryside surrounded by rice paddies and sugar cane fields. Wow. Did you have to apply for that scholarship? Is that, uh, that, that to become a Fulbright scholar? Is that how that works? And how many, do you know, have any idea how competitive it was? Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, it's similar to like a Rhodes scholar. I would say, you know, it's a, a in terms of competitiveness, it's a step below that. Um, and it depends on the country. So every country is a little different. Um, Thailand, where I was, was a pretty competitive country. So I think the acceptance rate was somewhere around the 5%. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. There's only 20 spots. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, it was, it was pretty competitive and I had to go through this long interview process that took pretty much my entire, you know, senior year of college. And, um, you know, luckily I had a lot of support at, uh, you know, with on college applying for that. But, um, you know, my experience that I had both in school and before was what set me up to be able to go and, and, you know, be lucky enough to be chosen. What motivated you to pursue that to begin with? Because it's certainly an, an endeavor, right? It's Yeah. So I've been very goal-oriented, goal which will tie really into sales and sort of what we're doing, what I'm doing now. But mm. um, as a kid, like I would get one thing stuck in my mind and that would be what I'd focus on. And so coming out of college, I felt like, you know, I was pretty well equipped. I could go get a job if I wanted a job but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And um, at this time I was still um, sort of running away, if I'm being honest, running away from the fact that, you know, family life blew up all that stuff and, and just didn't want to deal with it. And so my one goal was, can I live abroad and survive for a year? If everything went to, to, to crap in the U S would I be able to survive? And that was my one goal. And so um, I, I wanted to go abroad and see that I could make it and that I could live in a country where I didn't know the language, where I didn't know the people and I didn't understand the culture and if I'd be okay or not. And so that was the one goal and, you know, Fulbright, luckily I was introduced to that program and it fit. It was also a, a, a way to give back um, and just connect with people that I would never be able to connect with otherwise. So it sort of hit those boxes, but that was my one, one goal and why I actually applied. What year was this? What year did you graduate college? So I graduated in 2014. Um, so I graduated college in 2014 and this was 2014 to 2015. Um, okay. So that's, uh, yeah, I spent a year. And before that I'd been um, working at the law school and doing law clerk stuff. And what I learned from that experience was that I had a boss that actually told me, um, he told me that I, I was on, I was hourly. And so he was essentially like, you should stop doing what you're doing and take it slow because I was doing projects. I was essentially like a utility person. So I would go and reorganize bookshelves. They were moving into a new location. So I helped and did on all these different projects and I was working too quickly. And so from my experience with acting where I could make $2,700 in two days and I was so focused on like, let's just get this project done so we can move on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. He's like, whoa, 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 hold on. I don't have any more work for you. Like, take your time, you're hourly. And to me, that mentality was just like, no, like this is, this is not, this is not going to work for me. That's amazing. So. Wow. No kidding. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> it's quite a difference between the way um, that mentality and the way lawyers might think of the way that they're paid. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, and that translates into what I did, you know, coming back when I was searching for something after Thailand, where I had this amazing year and, and learned all sorts of things, but I was trying to figure out how can I, get paid what I feel like I'm worth and have my effort and energy be um, rewarded and recognized for the work that I'm going to do. If I'm going to work harder than someone else, I want to get compensated for that extra effort. Why was, so let's transition to that a little bit yeah. because then you came back and you uh, became a business development representative at Gartner, which if people are listening to this podcast, I'm sure they know who they are. Um, how did you, decide that sales was going to be the thing or or were there other options as well that would still satisfy what you just described in terms of getting paid for your um, effort and those, and those types of things yeah so 
Um, for, for me, I was looking for exactly the way that I could leverage my time and make more, more money for the time that I was going to spend. And, um, it, it came down to essentially sales. And I was the other, the other roles that I was looking at were, um, was commercial real estate. So I was going to either go into commercial real estate or I was going to go into technology sales and, and Gartner was, was, was great. I had some folks that had already gone um, gone through internships and were already full-time employed and had had great experiences that were a couple of years ahead of me mm-hmm. and recommended, recommended Gartner. And I, I sort of realized that when I came back from Thailand and I was just on a job search for two or three months and um, everything I was looking at was $50,000 salary in New York city or, you know, 40 grand in Florida and I was like, I know that I'm, I'm worth more than that. I know that over the course of the year, like I, I, I want to be able to make more money. And the only thing that provided that opportunity at an entry level position that I found and that I was qualified for was sales. And so that's what led me to, to explore that and end up, uh, end up eventually going with Gartner where they offered a, an uncapped commission structure. And was I correct there or did I misspoke, misspeak? Were, did you start off there as lead generation business development representative and then move into an account executive or did you come right into an account executive position? Yeah. So I started off as an account executive. Oh, so, the, so the way that, the way that Gartner, the way that Gartner structured, which is a little different than how uh, software companies typically are set up is that the entry level position was in, um, was an account executive in the small and mid-sized business, which essentially was managing smaller accounts, folks that were, you know, pre-revenue companies that were pre-revenue up to $250 million. So they were smaller book of business. And then you also had a little bit of prospecting that you were doing. So it was, um, yeah, it's not quite structured. The business development roles were actually a step up um, the way that Gartner structured in the SMB um, specific division of Gartner. So that is a little bit of a nuance from when you hear business development and account executive. I was account executive, but it was an entry level AE position. What did you notice early on that gave you confidence to say, I could, I can do this and I can be successful? I don't know. Um, to be honest, I don't know if I knew that I was going to be successful. I knew that I was going to work hard mm-hmm. and um, I felt like I was, I was smart enough to sort of figure it out and follow other people. Um, and I, I definitely ended up having some, some mentors that really helped me along the way. So when I was moving to Florida, so I'd come back from Thailand, was at home in Alabama and on the plane trip, when I decided that I was going to, um, you know, move to, move to Gartner and move to Florida and take on this role on the plane trip, when I was, when I was about to start, I wrote down on my, on my napkin, on the, uh, the plane napkin. And I wrote down my target salary was 60 K. So I had a 40 K base, 20 K commission structure. Um, it was uncapped. And I wrote down, I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to double this. That's my goal. On that napkin, I wrote it down and I said by December 5th. And um, I had no idea how I was going to get there. I didn't understand the commission plan, the commission structure. I knew it was uncapped. Um, but when I got there, I sat down with my manager once I went through the training program and we put together a plan for me to hit that target. And so I say like the reason that I felt like I was going to be successful is because I knew I, I put in the effort and two, I had the right mentorship. I had the right leadership around me. So you do you think that if you didn't have the right leadership, but yet you still put in that same effort, you would have um, gotten to that point? You would have still doubled your income potential? I, I think I would have gone to find it. So I was lucky that my direct manager was just one of the top people at, at Gardner. She was incredible. 
um, Drew Jansen. She absolutely just helped set me up for success in ways that I am forever grateful for. Um, but I think it was definitely that, that drive. And if you looked across the sales floor, there were people that were just incredibly successful with managers that weren't necessarily great. And they just had to find, um, the resources elsewhere. So it was a little bit more challenging for those folks. So I think I still would have been successful. I don't know if I would have hit that target, that number, mm -hmm. which I ultimately did not by December 5th. It was by the end of the year, December 31st, but, um, yeah. What did you learn from her, um, that, Others might, frankly, as they're listening to this, would want to know, frankly, that would help them get to the next level. And what specifically did she help you with or did you go and ask her for that you could take and use and put it into action that would turn into results? Yeah, I think it was just one is activity, just the, the right type of activity. Um, so like I didn't necessarily know, you don't, you never know, right? Some you, you can see which deals you think are going to go through, but you never know what's going to happen. So you've always got to have a backup for your backup, for your backup, for your backup. And that was our saying, you've got to have a backup for your backup, for your backup, for your backup. And um, I think that is just incredibly powerful because if you just hang up on one or two deals, like the likelihood that something's going to happen way out of your control. Um, I mean, it's just, it's just too high. So you've just got to have the pipeline and you've got to do the activity. And so I think that's what we really focused on was doing that activity. So that's the, the key thing that I took away. And if you had, so you had the $60,000 on target and you doubled that. Yeah. Speaking of the activity. So if that meant that to hit $60,000 that you would have to do say, call it like 50 phone calls a day or something like that. Right. Yeah. And have X amount of appointments per month, um, per week, uh, and so forth. Right. Were yeah. you, as you were sitting down with her in the beginning and figuring out how to actually do this, did you literally take those numbers and double them or how did that look functionally, I guess, logistically? Yeah. So functionally, we actually focused on the later stage. So for me, it wasn't, um, you know, here's the exact number of phone calls. Here's the exact number of emails. It was more of here's the quality deals that I need to have in this stage by this time of the month. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we're, um, you know, if we're at the midway through the month and I don't have, you know, at least six deals that could potentially close this month and, you know, obviously deal sizes range across companies, but our average deal size was somewhere between, it was right around 50 to 75 K. Um, so, you know, if I wasn't somewhere, if I wasn't somewhere where I had at least six deals that I actually, that I had actually gone through and we'd gone through the entire sales process with, and we're at the point where we're just, you know, working out the kinks or, you know, figuring out negotiation stuff, then um, I, I had to do more. And so that's how I, we looked at it. It was less of like, here's the exact number of phone calls and here's the exact number of emails that you've got to send. But it was more of that down, that, that um, further down the pipeline that we were really looking. How did you, you mentioned, you qualified it a couple of times. You said right activity. And then yeah. to, your, to your point about, um, you know, the kinds of deals further down the pipeline, like what was the right activity? Yeah. So the way that my territory was set up is that I had a book of business and I was tasked with growing that, but I also had a, a, a set of net new prospects that I was also, you know, prospecting into as well as identifying new companies because we were an SMB and we were focusing on tech, tech startups. There's tech startups that pop up all the time. So the right activity was oftentimes going to all these different VC websites, looking at 
um, you know, digging deep into LinkedIn and seeing which companies had just received funding or were coming out of um, stealth mode, mm-hmm. things like that, that, um, that would help bring in potential opportunities that no one had ever talked to, that no one had ever spoken with. Because um, Gartner's, a, Gartner's a big company and most everyone on the list that you get within your territory had been spoken to before. Mm-hmm. So um, when I was looking at my territory between brand new companies that no one had ever talked to, um, folks that were on that that list, as well as my my uh, book of business, I quickly realized that the book of business that I had, the companies were sort of stagnant. And so the right activity was understanding where should I spend my time? Because there's three sort of buckets that I can focus on in terms of finding opportunities and developing um, developing leads and, and building sales cycles off of. And for me, it was those two buckets of going after the folks that people had already spoken with, but it wasn't the right time that were on that list that understood what Gartner was, as well as going after those new companies that no one had ever talked to. And you have the opportunity to, to define what Gartner is, and they don't have any preconceived notions because they haven't spoken to, you know, eight other reps and, you know, who knows, who knows what those conversations had led to. And so that's where I spent my time. And that's where I really excelled was, was bringing on new business. Was that something that your mentor slash leader slash manager um, helped you think through? Or was it something that you just figured out on your own? You said, this is the right activity that I'm going to focus on. These are the things that I'm going to do. Yeah, I think part of it was that Drew, she was known sort of on the floor as someone that brought in new business. And so I think part of it was that her mentality and that's kind of what we were known as. So Mm -hmm. it comes to culture, I would say even within, especially if you're in a large organization or on a large sales team, the smaller team that you're a part of can really define your culture because we were known for that. So that's where we spent our time. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, we were really struggling from a retention perspective. There was a lot of stuff that was out of our control. There were different territories that had been mixed up and we were, we were losing a lot of clients. So really, when we looked at our book of business as a team, that's where the opportunity was. And we had a fantastic territory that had really great companies. It was, it was Georgia, Atlanta. There's just a great tech hub that's, that's, um, that's growing there. And so for us, it was just an awesome opportunity. And so that's where, that's where the culture really came into it and drew along with just the entire team. We all spent our time. Right activity and um, I guess being lucky enough to have the right mentor and then smart enough to, to extract that knowledge um, from the right mentor and then put it into action, I think, um, certainly encompasses everything you've said so far. Before we move on to yeah. um, moving into management and, and all that, um, were, would you say that, are the, was there anything else besides those two do you want to share? Or would you say those were the two most integral into your into achieving the level of success that you were able to achieve so quickly? Yeah, I would say then it, it, it really comes down to em- empathy. Um, and I would say that being really empathetic. So one of the things that I, that I did that was a little different than what other folks were doing that I think that led to success was giving folks the opportunity to buy, right? We're in sales. And so our whole mind is we've got to sell, sell, sell. But at the end of the day, people hate getting sold to, but people love buying. Everyone loves to buy stuff. Like how many people love whipping out their credit card to go buy something new online or go shopping. And like, we love to buy. And so when you think about it from that perspective, how can I make it as easy as possible for my potential prospects to buy from me? And so that's really what the focus was. And so I was speaking with CEOs, CMOs, CTOs of companies that are, you know, 
they're wearing a ton of hats. They've got so much going on. You've got to make it so easy for them. They've got to understand the value. You've got to do all the work to make it where it's just easy for them to buy and you make it easy and you put it, put it in their face over and over again and say, Hey, we talked about this. Here's how it'll help your business. What makes sense right now? What do you, what, what option do you want to go with? We know that Gartner is going to help you get to that next level. What do you, what do you want to go with? And when you make it easy for folks to buy and you think from that empathetic lens of I've got a thousand things, if I'm a CEO that I should be doing. Um, so why should I spend time with you? Um, why should I spend time talking to you as a sales rep and what offering do you have that's going to make my life easier? And when you really get into the, the mindset of your buyer and make it easy for them to buy, you're going to have a lot of success. Just to put a fine point on this, you, your target was 60. What did you end up with? Was it 120? Was it slightly less? Was it slightly more? I'm curious. Yeah. So I'm talking about my compensation dollar amount. So the actual yes. like numbers of volume was just, yeah, different. Yeah. But I actually ended up at like 120 and like 900. And this was across all compensation. So it was like, you know, 401k match. It was bonuses. It was everything. Got it. Okay. Um, but like, I got like a 40 grand. I got my base salary check in January when they pay out, you know, everything mm -hmm. from the year. Yep. I, I got my entire base salary in one check. And I was like, huh, this is nice. Yeah, that's quite yeah. a good, that's quite a good feeling. And obviously your success as a, as an individual contributor um, put you in a strong position uh, to become a, a manager. Um, how competitive was that? Uh, by the way, I know a large company like Gartner certainly couldn't have been the only one um, being considered for a manager level. And by the way, this is within two years. Is that correct? That you became from individual contributor to managing a team of seven people. Is that right? Yeah, 18 months. So I, 18 months. I, okay. I wow. yeah, I started in January of 16. And then by August, I had taken over a manager role. And um, of, of 17. Of, okay, 2017. 2017. 2017. Sorry, 2017. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay. So okay. that was like about an about 18 months. Um, yes. Okay, okay. Um, and so how how competitive was that? Yeah. So it was, it was very, so the, the, the way that the, the hiring cycle works is managers get promoted at the beginning of the year. That's when all the management stuff happens is in Q1 typically okay. um, interviews happen in Q4. And so there happened to be someone that had been struggling, a team that had been struggling, a manager that had been struggling. They were a really great individual contributor, but you know, as manager, they just, it just wasn't working out. Mm. And so there was only one spot that was open. Um, and there was a, a number of us that had applied. And, um, you know, there's probably about 12 to 15 folks going for this one, this one spot. And, um, you know, luckily I was, I was able to, to get selected. And the key focus was again on the new business skill and how quickly I'd ramped up and gone from having zero sales experience to, um, having a lot of success. And most of the team was straight out of college. So, you know, these were kids that had literally graduated two or three months before. And so it was, how do you get folks like that to perform at a high level that have no sales experience? This is their first job and be able to speak at a high level to CEOs and CMOs and CTOs of these, of, of, of uh, technology companies. How were you able to do that? What were the, actually, let me ask you this. Yeah. Um, what were the challenges and then what did you learn? And then how were you able to, um, get these reps to your point to, to, to perform at that level and have the business acumen to speak with these, the C-suite at some of these tech companies? Yeah. So I think the challenge was that the manager sort of knew for a few months that he was going to be transitioning out. So the team was sort of in shambles. There were two or three folks that had left throughout the year 
there were people that were covering, you know, four, not four, but two or three territories split between, you know, three or four people. And um, there were two new people, that, two or three new people that had joined just as I was taking over the team. So the challenge was that no one really knew each other. There was no sort of culture. Um, and folks were just sort of like burnt out and tired of like, you know, everyone keeps leaving. And now I've not only do I have my territory, but I've got to manage someone else's. And like, it was just, it was just like drawing folks down and their, their energy was low. And so that was the challenge was how do you take this group of people that really don't know each other, that don't really, that haven't been seeing a lot of success and get them to perform at a high level. Um, in terms of the business acumen piece, this is a, this is a funny anecdote. I, uh, uh, Jen Bravini, she'd come on to the team and she was really good, but was not super confident in her, her business acumen at the time. And she just didn't quite understand sort of the lingo. And she's like, how do I keep getting better? I'm trying to read. I'm trying to do all this stuff. And I said, watch Shark Tank. I know this is going to sound silly, but go watch Shark Tank. Like it's a great entry level way to understand, you know, the basics of business, how people analyze deals like negotiation. And you'll see all these different types of businesses that apply, whether you're talking to a tech company or not. And um, so literally through Shark Tank and, uh, you know, using different things that are easy for people to access and understand. That's amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. I've learned finance just from watching Shark Tank, which is interesting, you know? I know. Yeah. Like how do you, yeah, Kevin O'Leary and some of the way that yeah. he, he concocts deals are just yeah. fun to watch. So. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. And how much did, you know, obviously you had a uh, a great mentor and drew and, um, and certainly she was able to catapult you to a level that, um, you, that you wanted to get to and frankly beyond because you became a manager, how much yeah. of what, what you learned from her and, and cared about as a rep translated into how you were going to, uh, manage your team, how you did manage your team. Yeah. So something that I really wanted to, em wanted to emulate was, was what drew was doing, especially on the activity side. Mm -hmm. And, um, so that's something that I, that I tried to bring in was stressing that, that new business piece and, you know, really sort of channel what she did well and what was really helpful to me, which was, um, not just showing the how and here's what you need to do, but always being there to like push you to that next level and try to be that extra accountability partner. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'll say that's what I tried to bring in. I don't know if I was successful all the time. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that I learned from being a manager was, um, there are certain folks that that connects with. So the people that have personality types like me that were, that were very just, you know, I don't, you don't tell me exactly how to do it. Like, I'll figure that out. Just like, let's like, give me the motivation. What's our plan. And like, let's go. Um, and it worked really well for those reps and some of the other reps that needed a little bit more of the how is where I struggled as a manager. So we, you know, half the team, four out of the seven reps ended up hitting winner circle and overachieved quota and winter circle is, you know, president's club, the, the big incentive trip that happens at the end of the year. Um, but there were others that were, that were left behind. And I recognized that as a manager, like I, I failed on, on a lot of fronts where I still did see some success, but, um, yeah, it was, it was definitely an interesting learning experience going from an individual contributor to a manager. You mentioned, um, empathy as being one of the, the key drivers, um, for your success as a manager, how do you enable that? How do you nurture that into your reps? Is it possible? I think it's, I think it's possible. Um, you know, being able to, and one of the things that I always, that I'd always tell the team was like, you're thinking about Gartner all the time. That is your job is to sell Gartner, but 
the CEO that you're talking to or the CMO that you're talking to, their job is not to buy Gartner. They've got a thousand other things. So you've got to recognize how can you make sure that you communicate effectively. Um, and this is something that goes back to what I learned from Thailand when I was in a classroom with kids that I didn't speak Thai and they didn't really speak English very well. And we had to like coach people up is communication is key. And how can you communicate effectively with folks that are busy and use that empathy. And so I think you can definitely, definitely teach it. Um, and that's something that we really focused on was what do you think the CMO or CEO is really doing right now on a day-to-day -day basis? And how can you communicate effectively as a, as a sales rep, as an account executive, as well as bringing on a new business um, to make their job as easy as possible and get the most value out of Gartner with the least amount of time and effort as possible. Did you see a difference between, and I guess philosophically, did you see a difference between managing and, and leading? And if you do, what is it? And then the second part of that question is, um, where, which bucket would you put yourself in if there's a difference? Yeah, um, I think there is. I think there's definitely a difference because I don't think you necessarily need to be in a position of authority to be a leader. Right. And one of the things that we always talked about and sales methodologies that we use was to get reps up was show, um, show, share, observe. And that show piece as a leader is really what leadership is to me is showing the right things to do is actually not just lip service and talking about what you need to be doing to be successful, but actually, you know, showing folks the right way to do it. Um, so to me, that's leadership and, you know, managers, if you if you're a strong leader doesn't mean you're necessarily a good manager and just because you're not a strong leader doesn't also necessarily mean that you're not a good manager so for me management is more about the tactical operational piece um and i think if you can combine the two you can be really effective but i've seen managers that maybe weren't quite as strong on the leadership front that were still able to help their reps perform um but on a leadership front, I've, I've also seen folks that are great leaders in certain contexts, but were terrible managers um, because they didn't quite get the, the operational pieces that you need of management and really getting down deep into what it is people, people need on a day-to-day on -day basis. Which one would you say you, had, you were stronger in? I would definitely say I was stronger in the leadership front. <laughs> um, as, as I said, as a management, there were folks, reps that I, I worked really well with and others that, um, you know, it was a learning process and we would, you know, not butt heads in a bad way, but, you know, we would, the way that we looked at the business was a little different. And, um, you know, I, I wasn't in that role long enough, I think, to really develop as a manager. So I think that's part of it, mm -hmm. right? If you spend, you know, only three months, I mean, I was in management for, for over a year, but still, like you're in it for a year, I don't think that's enough time to really understand how to effectively manage people. Um, so yeah, I was definitely, I would say from a leadership perspective, that's where I, where I really shone. But from a management perspective, I don't think I was as strong. So I definitely put myself more in that leadership bucket. Before, before we move on to the next chapter in your life, so to speak, I'm curious, Yeah. Um, as far as motiva a motivator, right, as a leader, yeah. Like what, what, how would you have, how did you describe the way that you motivated your team? Yeah. So from a motivation perspective, I, when I first took over the team, the first thing that I did was go to lunch with everyone, just get out of the office and let's just talk about you. Like, why are you here? What is it that you want to accomplish? And, um, you know, from a motivation perspective, you've got to understand why everyone's there. 
Some people are there because the money, some people just want to be good at something and they want to be good at sales. They want to be good at their job. Um, other folks have something that they're really working toward. You know, I had a rep that he had, had um, you know, a lot of success at a previous job, had been laid off and was trying to sort of reinvent his career and was also dealing with, you know, other things externally that were out of his control. And so, you know, his motivation was very different than the, the, some of the reps that I had that were just out of college and just trying to like find their way. So when I think it comes to motivation, it's really getting into the why first and foremost, and then remembering that, like, that's why people are there. Um, and if you can, if you can put it in context of why they need to do X activity or Y activity based on what intrinsically motivates them, then you're going to have a lot more success and be able to connect with that, that sales rep and help them be successful. And you mentioned in the beginning, um, well, I mentioned at the beginning that obviously you founded yeah. a company, Ostrich, which I want to get into. And one of the um, yeah. the things that you had said early on is that you know your parents had gotten a, a divorce, which really um, affected the way that you you know thought about the world and money and all that other stuff. Tell me about Ostrich and and why you founded it to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. So as I, as I mentioned, you know I've had these experiences where as a ten year old, it can make twenty seven hundred dollars in two days. I see my parents over leverage and, you know, all that stuff happened and, and what it caused the divorce. They didn't have the right um, baseline to have these conversations that are sort of taboo and uncomfortable about money and different philosophies, which it's okay, but you've just got to talk about it. And um, so while this was happening and at Gartner, seeing folks that were really successful, like I was, that were making a ton of money and there were people that were just socking it all away and saving it. And there were others that were going out and buying new cars and houses and stuff like that. And, um, you know, kind of living that more flashy sort of sales lifestyle. Um, I just kept thinking there's gotta be a way to, to solve this. And, um, so I actually wrote a business plan when I was still at, at Gartner in 2017, wrote a business plan about how can we start to actually solve this? Because the current financial system isn't attacking financial literacy and well-being. It's, you know, you can sign up at the age of 17 for $200,000 in student debt and end up in college before you really even know what you're doing. Um, and how do you set people up for success? There was a ton of reps that had really great business ideas that were going to be stuck in sales for a really long time because they had mountains of debt. And it wasn't fair that they ended up in that position, in my opinion. And so that's where the impetus for Ostrich came from was how do we actually start to solve this problem, not through the education system, not through the government and knowing that financial services doesn't necessarily have the right incentive to, to go and solve it. And um, so that's really where the idea for Ostrich came from. And I ended up moving to New York and reconnected with a good friend from, from college who was in the finance industry. He'd been in private equity and uh, portfolio evaluation. And we sat down and um, drilled down into what is it that, that we can solve and started focusing on the habit specifically. So that's where the idea for Ostrich came from, um, was really just looking in, into those problems. And, and what's the, you mentioned habits. Talk to me about the habits and how Ostrich can help improve, solve, yeah. um, end bad habits and start good habits. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely, Jay. So. Um, Ostrich is taking what works really well in the fitness industry with group challenges and social accountability and applying it to money. So think savings with friends, investing with friends, and having that accountability partner to help you achieve your goals. So 
you know, for example, like in, in, and I'll bring it back to sales. Um, you know, I had one of the things that I, I didn't mention is there was a, a, a buddy who was, who started six months after I did, but him and I were really close and we would compete all the time. And that helped us both get better because, you know, he would pass me one month and then I would pass him and all that kind of stuff. And that accountability really helped foster success. And so it's applying that. So having that where you can have other folks that have similar financial goals to you and um, help get you to where, where you need to be. And so that's what we're doing is, um, you know, creating a, a, uh, an application on your phone that allows you to have that community and help you upskill your finances. The existing economic climate climate right now, obviously people are citing um, 2008 in a lot of different ways in terms of just the way the, yeah. the financial impact it's having on people. Um, what should folks have learned about then um, that they should apply and think about now as you talk about sort of money and, 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 and having the right habits, even when people are struggling, frankly, to even save a dollar? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a, that's a great question. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, we make finances to seem like this big, scary topic that's super complex, but at the end of the day, you've got to make more money than you spend or else you can't really do anything else, right? How are you going to save? How are you going to invest? You've got to figure that out. And it's obviously different for everyone. If you don't have a job right now and you were just laid off, like this is a very different situation. You've got to focus on getting that income. Um, and that's got to be a primary focus is you've got to have some sort of, of cash flow. And if you're on the other end and you were lucky to, to be in a position where, um, you know, you're able to work from home, you still have a job. Now's a great time to, to be saving more. Like you can't go out and go blow a bunch of money at, you know, the bar or wherever you, you know, like to go out or that sort of thing. So there's opportunities, but that's the key piece is to start with is you've got to bring in more money than you, than you, um, than you spend. And if you can get that right, then you have the opportunity to be, to be successful. But finances is top of mind right now. It's just, it's a scary time for a lot of people. Speaking of bringing more money than you spend, are you raising money? Um, or have you raised money? And then also with that, I guess, because someone that's <laughs> going to be funding you or, or you know, investing, you would want to know what the go-to-market strategy is. Uh, there might be some VCs that are listening here um, on this podcast. Talk to me about those two things. Where are you from a fundraising perspective and the go-to-market strategy? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was one of those people that stocked away all the, the cash that I was making, bonuses, all that sort of thing. So we're bootstrapped right now. And um, Andrew and I, co-founder, have been using our own, our own money to, to build. And we have plans to raise, but we have not actively been doing that. We've had a few conversations and been presented a term sheet. Um, partner wasn't right. Terms weren't great. So we just you know, have, have uh, passed on a couple, a couple opportunities like that. Um, but in the near future, we are planning on raising. Um, and in terms of a, a go-to-market, Jay, we are looking at this in, in uh, multiple fronts. So it is a consumer-facing app to start with. So when we look at our monetization strategy, it is based on affiliates and ad revenue. So if you are setting up an investing account for the first time, joining an investing challenge, you got to have a place to do that, right? You've got to have a brokerage account. You need to have one of these apps that allow you to do that, such as an Acorns or a Stash or, or one of those types of applications. So that's where we're able to make suggestions to users. And to us, it doesn't matter what you use. If you want to be more hands-on and you know, do the trading yourself or you want to automate it, that's great. Um, we'll present you the options and that's, that's where we can monetize right off the bat. 
Um, the second phase is what LinkedIn does, right? If you're in sales, then you probably use Sales Navigator or <laughs> use LinkedIn to sell. And so that's a B2B, uh, a B2B offering. And so that's where we long-term see the revenue coming from is a B2B opportunity to work with financial services companies and um, financial advisors and folks like that to host their communities, provide spe special offerings and features to them that allow them to better connect with their communities. Two follow-up questions. Um, you mentioned that you were one of the people that saved money, saved more than you spent, so to speak. Was any of the money that, you're, that you made as a child um, included in any of this? In other words, did you spend all that by now uh, or do you still have that as well? Oh no, I have that. I've got like retirement stuff that I will, I will not touch. So I maxed out my 401k every year. Um, I like maxed out everything HSA, you know, uh, traditional Roth, depending on the income level that I was at at certain years, certain, you know, complications of what you can, uh, what you can actually contribute to. Um, so no, I've still got that away. And I started investing in that when I was coming out of high school, playing around on, you know, Schwab and like, you know, learning to trade on that. And, um, yeah, so I'm, not touched retirement. It's all separate savings that is that is separate from retirement that I've that we've been using that I've been using and that Andrew's been using to to fund Ostrich. How long, by the way, just speak just to stay on that money thing for a second. How long were you um, doing the um, commercials and acting and those types of things? Like you mentioned, ten years old, but did it go until through high school, or when did it stop? Was it still yeah. going? <laughs> yeah. So it went. Uh, it went through. It went through uh, high school for the most part. And then I didn't really do anything in college and all that stuff. But I mean, hey, if someone wants to hire me for a commercial, I'll do it. I helped a buddy out who's starting a video marketing company and he got a commercial and he needed someone to, to help out. And I happened to be in town. And so, you know, I, I did that and helped him out and, you know, made a few hundred bucks. You know, it takes a few hours. So it's not like, uh, you know, a huge time commitment. And he didn't have anyone that he could pull off of because he never made a commercial before. So fantastic. I love it. Um, and then regarding the revenue model, for um, for ostrich, is it yeah. so? Is there going to be percentage of of a trend per, per transaction, like a percentage of transaction that happens on the application or in the in, in the app, or is it, um, or is it just money for exchange for you know something like an annual subscription or monthly subscription? In terms of the the revenue that you will make for that that you'll drive for ostrich. In other words, if money is 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 being um, you know comes into ostrich, and let's say you make. Yeah. $100,000 of, of gross revenue, is that a percentage of transactions that are happening or is it just through an annual or some sort of subscription? Yeah. 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 So let me, let me clarify. So the application is free for, for anyone using it. And we um, don't, I don't want your bank account information. I don't, we don't, we're not financial services companies. You won't put any money on the app. Okay. So that's one of our differentiators is that's yours. We're going to enable you to achieve your your goals give you the right resources but we're not going to provide them all that stuff's out there there's really great content there's really great services um, we're going to figure out what's right for jay right now based on your um, life situation two kids all that all that sort of stuff mm -hmm. um, so we make money when you choose to to um, use one of the products that we recommend so that is where we make money on the front end in the first phase of our revenue model and then on the B2B side, that will be a subscription model for those different features and um, services. So in the that's the two-pronged front. Got yeah. it. And the businesses will be paying that subscription, not individuals. Correct. Yes. The businesses will be paying that subscription. Individuals, it's always free. Got it. Got it. Okay, cool. All right. A couple more questions. Um, 
Yeah, now, we met, you, this clearly is, I'm a headhunter, so I'd be, I'd be remiss <laughs> if I didn't actually ask this question, which is, you know, what, do you have critical hires right now that you're thinking of and um, to help you sort of execute on that or just tell me where you are uh, with the growth and um, with, with, yeah, just the growth of the company and the growth of your team right now? Yeah, absolutely. So we are. So we're looking for right now. We're looking for full stack engineers. So we're looking on the uh, on the tech side, mm-hmm. um, full stack engineers, and we're looking for someone on the marketing front right now. Um, so those are the the um, we're looking for three hires: two uh, two engineers, full stack, and then a um, you know a marketing person to run that. And long term, we'll once we have the uh, you know the the B two B side up, that's when we'll start looking at bringing on sales reps and enter- enterprise level um, representatives there. But yeah. What's the marketing person going to be doing? Uh, the marketing is focused on content, social media, email marketing. So very active on sort of driving top of funnel awareness because we've, the way that we've built the model is we've, we've got to build the consumer side first. So it's consumer facing and um, in tandem, once we've got that to a certain level, once we hit 10,000 users, that's when we start turning on the B2B side. Got it, okay. Tell me just, just just because I'm curious. Yeah. What, what does the marketing stack look like right now? What technology are you using? Yeah, I mean, so we're using a few different automation tools. So we're using Mailchimp to automate some of our email flows. We're using um, something called GrowSurf, which is allowing us to do a referral reward, rewards program. Um, so one of the things that we actually rolled out last week, which I, I can finally talk about, is we're giving away shares in Ostrich for folks that sign up early. Um, so we are, are, I don't think anyone's ever done that. There's some similar instances where folks have done contests where they'll give away shares, but in terms of actually giving away a share in the company that you are signing up to, to join, uh, I think we're one of the first, so we're calling it shares for shares and you can earn up to 10 shares of ostrich. And, um, so we're using GrowSurf for that in terms of our, our tech stack. So I'd say those are probably the two most unique pieces of, or that's the most unique piece of technology that we're using. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I personally had never heard of that. It's Gross Surf. Is that how you say it? The, yeah. The technology. Okay. Yeah. Gross Surf. There's a few different referral awards um, mm. programs out there, but that's the one that we're, that we're using currently. That you're using. Okay. And where should people go to get in touch with you just to say thank you, follow up questions that maybe I didn't ask that they want answered um, and to find out more about Ostrich? Yeah, absolutely. So you can, if you want to email me, you can email me William at the ostrich app. So T H E ostrich app.com. Um, if you want to sign up, learn more about what we're doing, go to get G E T ostrich.com, get ostrich.com. And you can sign up, you can see what we're doing there. And there's a page on there that talks about the shares for shares program. If you're interested in becoming a shareholder in ostrich as well as a user and, um, yeah, and I'm happy to to connect on LinkedIn. So if you just uh, search William Glass and Ostrich, I'll pop up. And uh, yeah, William Glass, exactly how it sounds, G L A S S. William, thank you for going over quota. This has been great. Yeah, thank you, Jay. Thank you so much for having me. I love the podcast. I uh, listened to the last few episodes and really wish that I would have had this as a resource when I was. Uh, when I was an individual contributor, it would have been extremely, extremely helpful. So thank you so much for doing this. Well, that's extremely humbling to hear coming from someone who was obviously extremely successful as an individual contributor. So thank you. Goodbye, everyone.
All right. That concludes today's episode of the Silicon Alley podcast. I hope that you enjoyed this special episode and special thanks and shout out to Jay, the Jay David group and the Overquota podcast for allowing me to be on the show and definitely ask some questions that I hadn't been asked before and think about sort of connecting all the dots between my career in sales and what has led me to ultimately ostrich in this podcast. So we're gonna get back to the regularly scheduled programs where I interview other folks come next week if you like today's episode, though, feel free to share with other folks. And if you've not already, make sure to like and subscribe so you get notified when a new episode drops every Friday. Thanks so much and have a great one. Thanks for being a listener. I'm William Glass, CEO and co-founder of Ostrich, and of course, your host of the Silicon Alley podcast. You got no time to waste, but still you hesitate. Caught in a circle.